0: Show me the crypto. Show me the crypto. Show me the crypto.
1: In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me The Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren.
0: Well, hi there, and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Al Flanagan. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help bring you value. And on this episode, we're joined by Hashoshi, a YouTuber, a crypto educator, and a blockchain developer. hashoshi quite literally stumbled upon the Bitcoin white paper by happenstance more than a decade ago while using the online discovery engine StumbleUpon. The concept struck a chord with him and he has been focused on the space ever since. In December 2017, hashoshi posted his first YouTube video and since then he has built up and helped educate an audience of nearly 80,000 dedicated subscribers. hashoshi welcome to Show Me The Crypto.
2: Hey! Thanks for having me, guys, and thanks for sharing the story. Nailed it!
0: (laughs) It's stoked to have you on this episode, and I want to go back to that using StumbleUpon. You come across the Satoshi white paper. What were the next steps? How did you get yourself immersed in the space?
2: Yeah, I think it was just um, a product of of obsession, you know. Or you, you know, I was always the person who who always liked a bunch of different um, studies and practices. Like, I really liked economics. I really liked psychology. Uh, You know, my dad was in technology, so I really love technology. I could never find a place where I could really practice all those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Bitcoin paper has so many undertones of various different practices and studies like that. So that's where it it took me. And then I I just stuck with it in my own study over time. Ethereum came into the mix. It became, I guess, viable in 2015. Mm -hmm. And the rest was history. I found my way into like full-time work in the space. And I've been doing that ever since.
0: Specifically, what was that work? What did that look like?
2: Yeah, so I've been I've been doing various technical roles related to blockchain, you know, both the enterprise side and, you know, more of like the, you know, the public side. Um, and I do a lot of uh, decentralized application development, especially back in, you know, the last five years. That's what I've been doing full time. And then I also do a lot of, uh, you know, solution architecture. I help people learn about different products and platforms and protocols out there. And, you know, really, I just try and and be a technical resource for anyone interested in adopting blockchain tech.
0: One of the things I love about your channel, Hishoshi, is that you simplify what is often a complex space and an intimidating space. That's one of our goals as well through this show is to help An unintimidating source of information, Uh, but from your perspective, for those who are brand new to cryptocurrency or blockchain technology, why is this a space worth paying attention to?
2: I think this represents the the next evolution of how human beings interact with each other and with information, and and that you know I know that that oftentimes the space gets misconstrued as this like pseudo anarchistic, you know like angry space, which it really isn't underneath at all. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, the focus on privacy is something that I think makes it easy for the media or for, you know, people who, who don't agree with the idea of decentralized technology to say, oh, well, it's just a bunch of, you know, criminals who want to be able to buy drugs online or they want to, you know, do this, that or the other illegal thing. But the data shows that that is not what this technology is used for in in, in large part. And secondly, it's kind of like you know, the, the analogy that, that we always talk about is if if I go in my house and I close my blinds, does that mean I am committing a crime inside my home? No, I just don't want people to, to look at me through my window. And this is the same thing for money. You know, you should be able to buy stuff without people knowing what you bought and for how much and when and where, you know, little things like that, I think, are are the reason why this technology is not going away because people People want that and, you know, just for their own sort of human right.
1: What about for those who maybe believe otherwise, who feel like money should be tracked um, and they're okay with their own money being tracked for reasons that, you know, for tax purposes and that, you know, Mm -hmm. they believe in everyone paying their tax because it supports their country and it, and and that sort of thing, if it's not trackable, if it is hidden money, whether it's for criminal activity or not, um, some people believe that all, all of that sort of information should be tracked as part of the system. Uh, what's your thoughts around that?
2: Yeah, that's a fair counterpoint. I think there are obviously lines, right? You know, by no means do I think, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, oh, well, tax, you know, taxes are illegal. I mean, that's just, I mean, good luck pitching that one, you know, like (laughs) that, just saying that does not absolve you of your, your responsibility to pay taxes. And quite frankly, you know, I don't think anyone likes taxes, but I'm okay with taxes. If I see the, the, the output as a result of the tax dollars that go in as, you know, a net net hole for the country, right. If there's those tax dollars are appropriated in a, in a way that that makes sense, totally fine. But I think to the counterpoint that money should be tracked or that you want to use the the system that you know is native to your country i think it should just be a choice you know and it's not like choice as in like i choose not to be tracked and that means that i don't have to pay taxes i don't have to follow the law it's really not like that it's more so if i don't want to be tracked i should have the right to say i don't want to be tracked And it's the same as like GDPR in Europe, right? You know, they have the ability to tell any company, I want to be totally forgotten by you, right? I want my data to be deleted. And if you don't comply with this, there are penalties. I think that that should be just a fundamental thing every country does. You know, you should not have to be subject to uh, a permanent permanent spot in someone's database because you wanted to buy a greeting card (laughs) online yeah
1: uh going just a step back to um your intro into crypto and you mentioned you've been developing um decentralized applications for the last five years or so but you got into this maybe just slightly earlier were you a developer at the time or is that something that you started after getting into blockchain
2: yeah my growth as a developer really happened in tandem with uh, the growth of of blockchain and i would say i really got into development about the time that ethereum came into the mix and it really it's only because of my, i guess my my age at the time i was still going through like the core like core education when the bitcoin white paper came out you know i was in high school at the time and then throughout college i was studying to be a developer you know i was doing computer science and you know do, you know going through that process and it's really, uh, you know, I'm always, I've always been of the mind that you can learn computer science through a degree, but you really don't learn until you're, you're going and you're under fire and you're building stuff on your own or with a team. And that's the same, you know, that's what happened with me also. I learned a ton by just lurking in GitHub repositories and on forums and uh, having people critique my work and teach me what I was doing wrong. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's the best way to learn.
1: So you've been in this space for quite some time I think long enough that we could call you an OG in this space um, looking that. back looking back at blockchain's <laughs> history uh, you know given how long you've been in this space what's what are some of the bigger changes that you've seen take place um, over the last five six years
2: yeah I think the first big change was <clears throat> was after the the 2013 bull run I know compared to to now, it's like, well, that wasn't a bull run, you know, but it's like at that time, you know, Bitcoin was worth hundreds of dollars and people were so shocked back then that this digital thing that no one gets and basically only nerds talk about or, you know, better yet at the time, only criminals use, which is also not true. I was buying like trading cards with it, you know, like nothing illegal. Um know at that time it was the biggest polar shift i think in the sense that people looked at this digital currency that was not tied to a video game like it wasn't cod points or you know whatever else that they don't know who invented it but it's worth a lot of money and i think it was the first time i saw people that were not interested in it in the first place actually be like oh you know there might be something there you know and of course Then Coinbase really makes it popularizes it with the the expansion of their mobile app and then gives a bunch of people access to to cryptocurrency. And I know Coinbase is, of course, another big hated entity now, but I I do respect what they did to make, you know, make crypto maybe not mainstream, but to give people who are interested in trying it out an opportunity to do so without having to go on Reddit and buy it from someone. And like that is a A huge benefit that they offered the space. But the biggest thing to me that's changed from 10 years ago to now is that the world has made people care about the messages that we're talking about in terms of Bitcoin, right? Where you have every country basically on earth right now, you know, stroking the balance sheet, making, you know, printing money, and people are finally understanding and caring about inflation and central banking and, putting their money and you know, their hard earned spending power into assets that are not, you know, slowly going through, dropping through the hourglass. And that's not to say that this is a, you know, people against the world situation, but more so, I think people are just getting wiser to the fact that they want to have um, protection over their spending power by fixed supply assets that, you know, they feel safer
0: in. Looking forward on that timeline, how, what are, what are some of the big things that you see? Like, I mean, this bull run, some of the, I guess the, the hot topics are, like, are NFTs, DeFi, but where do you see the space going in maybe, you know, five, 10 years?
2: Yeah. If I had to guess, and, and if I had, you know, this is my utopia vision, it would be that the age of, the age of blockchain maximalism will have gone extinct and it will no longer be this battle about oh whose L1 chain is better than the other oh you know oh I have a, a thousand transactions per second versus you know ten thousand in testnet. like who cares about that I think the future is there will be a a variety of layer one type protocols with different um, gu- security guarantees with different transaction throughputs with different uh, smart contract scripting languages and each will have sort of a niche. The use case that they're really good at solving, or a user base that they're really, really catered towards, and then networks like uh, Polkadot and Cosmos and Icon are going to create this sort of um, multi-chain interoperable world of multi-chain, and and I and I think that that is where we're going. That's where we have to go because there's not, and this is an opinion, but I don't see a way to create one blockchain protocol that can serve let's just say the half the world's population let's just say like close to four billion people at scale on its own and and to have adequate finality security and token economics and all that sort of stuff i just don't see that happening so it's got to be multi-chain universe
1: speaking to that do you think so there's 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 blockchains like um, like Polkadot, where one of the, the biggest points that people always bring up is this interoperability. It's focused on interoperability. Yeah. Do you think that at some point in the future, as you just discussed, all blockchains will be interoperable? Will that just naturally End up getting solved at some point, or will they? Will some still be kind of in their own uh, their own little ecosystem?
2: Yeah, it's possible that you'll still have outliers that don't interoperate. But I think, you know, it's funny. People, I think oftentimes people are like, "Oh, well, 100% decentralization or nothing." I'm of the mind that 100% decentralization is is utopian and doesn't exist because human beings tend to, um, collaborate and work together naturally, you know, they form an open source community or they, um, they build out an interoperability network of multiple different blockchains. So you start to, you know, make a conglomerate out of these networks. I think that's a really good thing. And I think that human tendency is what's going to solve the problem of fragmentation in the network where you have to have like 40 wallets to participate in DeFi across different ecosystems, or you have to, you know, to, to stake cryptocurrency on a certain network, you have to have like, uh, you know, two mobile phones just to make it work properly. That like those sorts of things will solve themselves because I think people will start to demand that if you're, you're the network, their network of choice is not making the strides to interoperate with others through something like Polkadot or Cosmos or a protocol that doesn't exist yet, they will probably say like, we're not gonna use this anymore unless you make the user experience good for us by bringing us into this ecosystem that other networks are on. So I have a feeling that's, what's going to happen, but of course, you know, it could go the totally opposite direction and uh, you know,
0: who knows? I'm hoping just taking this back to the real, like somebody who's brand new jumping in this conversation, Mm -hmm. you hear about, you know, Ethereum is, probably next to Bitcoin. Well, it is the most known uh, blockchain, mm-hmm. but then you hear these other ones like Cardano, Polkadot, and people use the term ETH killers, which is a little bit silly, but yeah. what are your thoughts, or not so much what are your thoughts, but can you just kind of give a bit of an explanation of you know Ethereum versus what some would dub ETH competitors, what the differences are? Yeah.
2: <clears throat> I mean, the biggest difference is that all almost all of the Ethereum competitors have had the luxury of looking at Ethereum's mistakes and building to solve for those mistakes, you know, primarily not considering um, scaling early on or scaling options or opportunities. That's one, you know, like obviously it was a different time when Ethereum was built. There was not the same thought about scalability as there is now. Mm-hmm. So then you have Elrond, right, which is a, a, a sort of an Ethereum compatible chain in a way because you can write smart contracts in a variety of different languages and as that feature comes into comes into its own on mainnet you know from the very beginning they built with sharding in mind with all these different technical um uh, levers i suppose to make the network scalable and cardano took an even more uh lengthy obviously people get mad because cardano takes forever to release features but because they, re- they redid everything from scratch. It's like there's nothing reused in that protocol. And so they said Ethereum is the move fast and break things approach where you get the network out. Uh, Solidity has some trapdoors. It's kind of hard to build with. We're going to make a super safe, formally verified, almost academic blockchain network that is the total counterpoint to what Ethereum does. You know, native assets are going to be accounted for on the main ledger not in a smart contract you know little things that that make a big difference and so that's that's the fundamental thing is how can we do things different from ethereum but still fill the same niche that ethereum fills
1: what's you know you just talked about some of these differences what stands out to you as maybe the most promising of
2: of these different uh blockchains yeah, I think the two that, the two that I mentioned are the two like direct ethereum competitors that I like the most probably in terms of their the, like the overall vision and that is by no means a guarantee that they take a significant market share from ethereum. I think the, the quicker path is going to be the net new users that come into the space are going to choose those protocols maybe over ethereum. That would be their ultimate goal, but again that is that's conjecture but i i also want to mention that i don't put Co- uh, polka dot and cosmos as an ethereum competitor even though it, they're often discussed that way i think it's a totally separate category because ethereum is not trying to build what polka dot and cosmos are, are building and if you look at the polka dot and cosmos community like they're just now talking about having native smart contracts on their platform and So it's not, it's not totally the same. So I just want people to know that it's not like I hate Cosmos or Polkadot because I don't put them in the conversation. They're just very different.
0: When it comes to Cardano, um, there's a lot happening on that roadmap of, you know, all Mm -hmm. of the different, uh, milestones and that kind of thing. Can you give just kind of like a Coles notes example of where we are and what is planned for the future?
2: Sure. Yeah. Where we're at today, and this is February, like close to March of 2021. We are at the point now where actually on, on Monday, in a couple of days, they're going to launch um, multi-asset support. So basically tokenization on the Cardano mainnet. And what that's going to do is basically without the need to build a smart contract or to use an ERC-20, ERC-721, like a token standard, you're going to be able to create user-generated tokens, um, you know, non-fungible tokens, stable coins. You can start to build token economies natively on the main Cardano ledger which is pretty powerful in the second quarter, just give or take, uh, the, the next phase of development should launch. Uh, it's called Gogan after a famous computer scientist that's going to launch smart contracts onto the network. And then from there, it's really going to be focused on, uh, continuing to decouple Cardano from IOHK, the main organization that has been building it for the, the longest time and, uh, focusing on, on chain governance like having the community make all the decisions take on most of the development from here on out and so it's uh it's starting to come to fruition and that's why you see cardano is is picking up steam in the markets now because i think people are starting to feel that you know fear of missing out like it's finally coming you know it's finally happening but we don't want to miss the train
0: Ulf, do you realize that our audience has either been watching or listening to this episode for 20 minutes 20 minutes They should probably subscribe. Yeah, they should subscribe and they should like and comment and hit that notifications bell. Oh, and did you tell them about the NFTs? That's right. We have our own NFT for our OG supporters. This is a way you can support our show. Help us bring you continual great content. Information on that is below. So when it comes to your video content, one thing you don't talk a lot about is price. Why is that? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about price only to the extent that I think is necessary, which is to to everyone wants to speculate. Humans love to speculate, especially when they have an emotional tie to an investment in the form of, you know, thousands of dollars, right? They love to speculate on what it could be. Mm-hmm. But I don't focus so much on that because I think that that sets the wrong example where crypto is a casino and it's a get rich quick scheme when it is markedly not because personally I've lost enough money in that mindset to never want to do it again and I don't want other people to and I don't want people to think that they can get in short term get out a millionaire and then just forget about it the the mission here is to build technology that makes people's lives better for more than 6 months and 1 million dollars made in in defi markets you know so you know I want people to think about if you you think Bitcoin's going to go to 100k by December 2021, tell me why you think that that's going to happen. Don't lead with Bitcoin's going to 100k. I believe it. Lead with here's the fundamental economics behind Bitcoin. That's why it's going to go to 100k. And I think the only way that that happens is if I don't lead with price in all the videos that I make. And if I can explain to people why I think this project has potential. Explain to them. I can't guarantee you that this potential is going to turn into token prices that make you happy, but maybe it still gets adoption. Um, then people start to think about things in a little bit of a different way.
0: Oftentimes, these you know that the reality is people come into the space like you said based on price and speculation, and yeah. you know big chunks of people coming during the bull runs. Uh, for those who maybe that is the case who are watching this, what is you know just a a cautionary or like a word of warning or, or some tip you would give somebody who's brand new, whether it's how they hold their coins or however you want to take that.
2: Yeah. I would say it's always the newest. And this, this is going to support in a sense, some of the stuff you hear in the media, but it's always the new people that come into the space that tend to be the ones who get the, the, like get caught holding the bag, right? Mm -hmm. It's the people that come in last that come in without thinking, without researching, without understanding the space. They're the ones who throw, you know, you know, ten thousand dollars of, of borrowed money into Bitcoin when it's at twenty k in twenty seventeen, and then they have to live for two, three years in in like massive, massive loss positions. You know, mm. like that's the problem. And if you're brand new to the space, I'm not discouraging you from being a part of the space. But I'm. I would discourage you from spending even one dollar on a token until you really understand what it is you're buying, and you know your time horizon, because you know I think most people are share the belief now in crypto that we're kind of just starting what is a bull bullish cycle, but sometimes it doesn't materialize the way we think it's going to, and so you need to posture yourself to to you know be in a position where you're okay if the money you put in is in is in the negative for a while, and you need to be able to hold long-term. And if you can't do that, then don't spend the money, please. It's easy to say. It's great advice. But as someone
1: who's been there, <laughs> <laughs> I entered uh, the space, you know, right yeah. in 2017, right before the peak. And then I experienced everything you just said. And I'll tell you mm-hmm. now for our listeners who maybe are new to this and are just getting in that it's hard to think about the risk and the position you could be in when you're down such a huge amount, because the mind's always sat on, yeah, but where will I be when it goes up? Oh, I could double yeah. my money. It's the speculation of the rewards that you can get. And oftentimes the downside risk is kind of brushed aside, I think, in our minds. So yeah. it's great advice, and I'm just re-emphasizing what you just said there. But yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: I was just going to add to that though like and and it's if you look at like the the average crypto influencer person right all almost all of them have equally experienced the pain of like you know getting caught caught in a, a cryptocurrency where they were sort of the last the last one in and and that's like it's so it's not like these people are are not human in that regard like i i invest in stuff that tanks all the time and i've been in the space for for a long time and in 2017 too like i've always been a long long long-term position holder it's i mean it's i was of course i never even considered selling because it's you know it's like that that's just not my thing but it still hurt you know in 2017 Mm -hmm. because you know you see stuff that you had invested in that you really believe in you gotta you gotta really believe to hold on through a period where it's worth Relatively, very little.
0: I saw an interview you did. I'm pretty sure, yeah, from a couple of years ago, maybe with uh, Ivan on Tech. Maybe it was more recent than that. And yeah. you were talking about you asked him the question, but you were you were talking about for those who want to get into the space. And it seemed like as you were asking that question, like that was a real belief that you held that if somebody wants to get into the space and learn how they can contribute, that there are opportunities. Is that the way you see it? Yeah, I do. I
2: mean, I've seen, you know, just from, from being engaged in a space, like I've always been kind of, um, it's a lot different now, but I've traditionally, I've always been very introverted person. So in 2017, you know, crypto was like kind of mainstream. So I was, I was no longer as afraid to create videos on the content. It's like, I just, I was always so worried about it. So I finally was like, all right, this is the time, you know, people will care about this now. And, um, since that time, and you guys, you guys are really well researched on my stuff, so I appreciate that. Like when I started and everything, but um, since then, I've seen people that had commented on my videos saying, like, I'm new to crypto. You know, come back, comment on my videos, and say I'm involved in this project or I'm, you know, I'm helping out with this uh, this open source community. You know, that stuff's really cool to see. It's Like if you just if you learn and you build up some skill and you find a project you're interested in, a lot of these projects like they need help either on a volunteer basis or, you know, I even have friends who I've worked with in the past who are working full time now at crypto startups because they, they just held the token. They liked the project. They had some skills and they interviewed and they got a job. So you can, and you can get paid to be in, you know, in the crypto space, which is the best. I think
1: when people hear that, if you're not a developer or you're not that technically savvy, but you still like crypto, crypto. You you like the concept of 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 crypto and the fundamentals, but maybe you're not that technically skilled. People just think, well, I, I have no place in this space to to help out. Are there is there is there a space for people who aren't as technical? And and what are some of those opportunities if you know yourself? Yeah, there
2: are a ton and I will I will give another one of my deeply held beliefs and that is that if you think of crypto like a cake and there's multiple layers and you know everything, the technology is the cake stand. The entire rest of the cake and the icing and everything that makes the cake good is the user experience, the community, and like the people and business part. So like the, the tech part is only a small part of it. And I think it gets blown up to this epic proportions because obviously tech is like this nebulous, sexy thing that people don't really understand. And so it gets made into this bigger thing than it actually is. I think that there are tons of jobs like product management, marketing, um, community building, developer evangelists, uh, community managers. Like, There are so many positions that are critical to, to projects like this. And, you know, and if you don't have technical skills, you can be technical without being a developer. Like there's plenty of like technical jobs that are not developer positions, like understanding how your favorite layer one blockchain protocol works in and out by taking the time to read the white paper, asking questions in discord and telegram, and like being the master at that, that now puts you in a position where you can say I'm technical and I can go and talk to, you know, uh uh application development company and say we need you to build us a really sexy mobile wallet and like you can communicate to them what they need to do and be a technical project manager so like there's so many places that you know without dev skills and even if you hate development you don't have to to know it you can find a job
0: that's awesome i want to switch gears here uh because Mm -hmm. we have the luxury of the fact that you have such a wide knowledge in this space it's We want to take advantage (laughs) of that and ask you about a couple of things. So I I saw that you had done a video recently answering a question. It was a really good question. And that was basically just explaining governance tokens. And that's something even myself, I mean, I've been in the space since 2016. I don't claim to know a ton, but I'm learning Mm -hmm. as I go. But that's one that has always been a little confusing to me as well. So do you mind? I thought you did a really good job explaining that. Do you mind explaining what governance tokens are and what their purpose is as well?
2: sure yeah governance tokens are this this construct within blockchain protocol where those tokens equate to sort of a share or a voice or a vote in the context of uh, governing the chain and when we say governing the chain that that includes things like um in delegated proof of stake some people call that the participation in, in consensus right where you pick a delegate that's part of the block making committee in a blockchain network but more like lar- more more often you see things like uh, community voted improvement proposals for the network or who to distribute grants to to develop uh, like off chain tech or on chain tech or voting to um, go or no go a hard fork like these are the types of things that governance tokens are used for where no um, the token economy part of it though is different across different networks like in Zillica, it's an example I always use. You can stake your ZIL, and for I think it's for every a thousand ZIL, you get one GZIL governance ZIL. You know, mm-hmm. and so that is then a very scarce uh, token which entitles you to uh, you know a vote or a voice within the, the community. And the one caveat I always make is that there's all this discussion now back and forth about whether governance tokens in the context of DeFi, which you can maybe consider under the law an enterprise, you know, where I don't know if I agree with that, hmm. but you uh, you know if you're participating in governance, you sort of get a share of the the fees from this DeFi platform. People are wondering, well, do the securities and equities uh, regulators around the world consider those to be securities because it entitles you to a share of profit, hmm. and it's like it, it's like a a vote, much like a share would be. Like you're if you're a shareholder, you have voting rights, and, and it's the same model. And so there's all this question around. How is how are regulatory bodies going to start to treat governance tokens? And I think privacy coins are going to always be the first line of attack for any regulator. But that would be second in in line for me in terms of scrutiny from from regulators. If you had to you had to ask, so just be aware of that that fact. You know, like I'm personally not one who's going to just load up on all sorts of governance tokens. And diversification is is the panacea for that
1: governance tokens have kind of been um blowing up i guess you could say over the last six months or so maybe longer but do you think a lot of how people perceive governance token tokens is just speculation on price versus actually wanting to take part in that governance
2: yeah honestly i do and and that is that is another interesting thing like you look at any blockchain protocol and you say okay well oh like what a what a technical achievement most blockchain protocols are maybe 30% technical achievement and the rest of it's like game theory psychology sociology building your protocol and the incentive structure within your token economy and your scripting language and the way that your network reaches consensus and all that to incentivize only good behavior and positive enforcement of the network pro- and protocol rules and to naturally dissuade malicious activity in the network and so governance tokens when they're used as a speculative tool i think almost erodes the effectiveness of them as governance tokens because then you, you know at at best you just have a bunch of people who don't participate that hold a lot of governance tokens but at worst you have a lot of people who don't give like one care to the network at all and are in it from a purely speculative perspective. And if enough people do that, they could theoretically coordinate, you know, coordinate or collude to do some damage, you know, with a large quantity of governance tokens. I don't know if we've actually seen that happen yet, but it could happen.
1: That is something that I wanted to ask as well, which is, you know, I realize governance tokens work differently on different blockchains, but what's the risk of, you know, that power being abused of whales coming in and owning a majority share of governance Mm -hmm. tokens, and then voting on something that, you know, purely will uh, benefit them and perhaps just their their gains?
2: Yeah, and candidly, I don't have an answer in terms of solution to that problem. And because I think it hasn't yet materialized as a genuine um, executed attack vector on a, a layer one blockchain protocol. Largely in part, largely due to the fact that most people who are in these networks do care, like do care about the network. And they have right. also a lot of the native utility token. So they think if I, if I'm participating in in destroying this network, I'm also destroying my value in another place. So that's why I say like anyone who, or a blockchain that has a utility and a governance token need to make sure they're correlated to each other in a way so that those who hold the governance token don't want to erode the value of the utility. But again, like these are such complicated, um, they're complicated economies because they're, first of all, they're tiny in terms of like overall, um, saturation and market cap. So like small moves and small mistakes can turn into large earthquakes.
0: um switching gears here to another topic uh, mm-hmm. nfts i mean they have been i've used this example in a couple previous episodes but the likes of gary vaynerchuk mark cuban like all of these people are mm-hmm. talking about i've i can't believe how much uh, conversation on twitter right now is is around these types of things what do you make of it the hype around it uh the utility the what nfts could be used for and their potential what are your thoughts on nfts in general
2: I love NFTs and I think that, but I think there's a fine line between uh, something that's, that creates value and something that's just like for the sake of an NFT, let's just make it an NFT. Like, you know, uh, there are people and you can see it on Twitter. If you search, if you scroll through the NFT conversations, like there are people minting NFTs that are just like, you know, stock photos from, you know, a, a website, like Shutterstock or they're, going on Microsoft Paint, creating a bunch of like circles and then putting it as an NFT. Like that to me, like it's cool and that's fine. Like that's your that's your MO, you can do that, you know, but that's not a super valuable NFT. So we're at the point now with NFTs where we're kind of like in the ICO craze where if it's an NFT, it's dope, you know, and that's <laughs> that will change because you will find that only certain Like the cream rises to the top. Like artists are going to continue, I think, to take advantage of NFTs. I think that um, gaming is maybe the use case for NFTs because people play games all the time. You you play Fortnite or you play Call of Duty or whatever. You're buying these virtual points to then purchase subsequently virtual items which you have no ownership claim to whatsoever. And if you read the terms and conditions, you know they can. I think it's Epic Games. They can just, they can chop your account and they offer you no restitution for the hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars you spent on skins, you know? Whereas if these were non fungible tokens and you have a private key that's, you know, your custody ownership of those items, you can go play, maybe play another game or sell to a player who still has an account where when you, when you quit, when you quit the game, you know? True ownership of digital items is something that people should not be scoffing at but I understand why someone now would look at this like people are selling what for $50, you know, like I'll go and download a, you know, cartoon version of Gary Vaynerchuk and sell it for two grand easy, but it's consumer behavior. You know, eventually people will get sick of buying and there will be plenty of people who bought worthless NFTs and then it'll reset and we'll be, uh, we'll be in good shape.
1: In regards to your points on, uh, on, on gaming and like how currently without NFTs, you know, you don't own those skins, you, you rent those skins. They're just a part of your account in a centralized mm-hmm. system. That's all basically being leased to you. Well, anyways, moving into NFTs and gaming and how it solves that, is it the inevitable future for all of gaming to implement blockchain and NFTs? Or is that something that may happen here and there but not everywhere
2: i think long term like we're talking 5 10 15 20 years from now the games again it'll be the games who don't do it that will be looked at like they are not customer centric because they're saying we don't we don't value our customers enough to give you the right to own the things that you're buying from us like we want to keep this one-sided market relationship you know, the way it is. And then eventually that will force game studios to, you know, to do the same thing. It's kind of like when, um, I think EA released that star Wars battlefront game, you know, one of the newer ones mm-hmm. and they had like the, the, like the chest, you know, sort of like reward chest the loot boxes mechanism. Yeah, yeah. Loot boxes. You know, it's like, people were pissed off about that because it destroyed the game because it was no mm-hmm. longer fun for people who didn't want to spend money. I think it's going to be the same thing here if you're going to spend money on a game and give money to a game studio, you would ask in return to actually own the item that you've purchased, which is how every other transactory relationship works in real life. You know? So that that's, I just think a natural progression that's now you're able to implement with, you know, blockchain tech in a way that's not just siloed.
1: And so I'm just really going into the future here, but what about looking even further past gaming and we could look at so so talking about vr vr Mm -hmm. currently is for gaming and vr is still very young but one day whether we're talking about vr ar a combination of the both it's Mm -hmm. going to be more um a bigger part of everyone's lives and will there be a point where nfts aren't just for gaming But because of that evolution and because of integration of VR and AR in our lives, will we get to a point, do you believe we'll get to a point where we're in Ready Player One type territory and the things that we buy to support our lives, the jobs that we do, maybe we actually are paid in NFT type, at least or or we're buying NFT type things and the world's marketplace revolves around NFTs and digital assets?
2: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't rule that out, but I, I mean, I think that that, that period, that whole idea is probably a generation bridging idea where, you know, cause I think right now, like you see with the, like the pandemic and, and the way that that's manifested itself in, you know, longer term lockdowns, people being isolated. I think that, um, you're probably going to see companies prioritizing virtual experiences that help people connect with each other in a more earnest way without being physically together. And I think that that's just, you know, that that's apparent in some companies priority, right? Like the last couple years, Facebook's been like all over, you know, AR VR, and there are plenty of other companies that are doing the same thing. So likely that's where we're going, but I think it'll take time for people to accept and to embrace that type of digital physical life where you spend with other real people in a virtual setting, like large proportions of your day, but it's definitely possible.
0: Um, Taking a step back on this, something that's been very popular is NBA top shot in terms of a lot of people paying attention to that. Does that just seem like an inevitable thing that all sports leagues will do at some point? Like, I mean, I, NBA has had, success with it, it seems like is NHL, NFL. Like, do you see that happening for all major sports? Yeah. I mean, listen
2: you, if you look at, if you look at all American sports, like I'll speak specifically for American sports, Mm -hmm. all American sports will take every opportunity to monetize what they have Mm -hmm. period. (laughs) Like it's now to the point where the game is secondary to the commercialization of the game. Mm -hmm. So the answer is probably yes, they will do this. I think a much better implementation of what Top Shots has done is looking at the, the Chili's blockchain, the Socios platform and what they're doing with, um, both fungible and non-fungible tokens in a context of soccer or, you know, football, as I would prefer to call it, um, all these big soccer clubs around the world, they are, you know, followed by people around the world, like they have global fan populations. And they're using these fan tokens as almost like governance tokens, right? Where you can, as an owner of the, you know, the, uh, PSG token for Paris Saint-Germain vote on the next year's, uh, kit designs, like their shirt designs. Or, um, you know, if you own these tokens, you get entered into these sort of rolling raffles where you can come meet the players, you get exclusive fan experiences and stuff like that. You can collect digital trading cards of the players on the team. Like, these are the types of things that they should be doing. Capture, capturing moments is cool, officially licensed moments. Like, I get that. It's a scarce thing, only if it's licensed, though. Because if the NBA were not saying, uh, we're enforcing that this is the only licensed copy of this moment, they're not worth anything.
0: Hashoshi, so a big part of your channel is about answering questions. And I have to ask, mm-hmm. what is the most common question that you get from those who are new to the space? um
2: the most common question it would be one of two questions uh what is a hardware wallet and what is the best one that's one big one which is good it means that people are learning quickly that i should have one of those you know
0: so what's the answer Uh, to that question before you get into (laughs) Uh,
2: the answer is uh, a hardware wallet is a piece of physical hardware that is designed to securely store private keys those private keys are essentially your bank vault key to access and to send the cryptocurrency that lives on the blockchain. Common mis- misconception is the crypto lives mm. on the the vault, like on the ledger, Nano S, or on the Trezor Model T, or whatever. It doesn't. Just the keys that give you the right to spend those coins. The coins still exist on the blockchain. So, mm. if your hardware wallet's backed up properly and you lose that piece of hardware, your crypto's safe. You just restore it to a new one. Um, that being said, I would say my favorite. Hardware wallets now would be uh, Trezor Model T is solid. It's compatible with a lot of tools online, like ShapeShift, for example, my Ether wallet, whatever. That's why it's great. Uh, Kobo Vault Pro is a pretty darn good wallet also. Um, And they're very customer centric. They listen to customer feedback, which is the biggest game changer. And then probably third, for someone who just wants to store and utilize every feature in the Bitcoin world. Uh, The cold card Mark three is the best Bitcoin focused wallet that you can buy. Hmm. So there you go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you said there was two questions. So what was the second question that you get asked a lot?
2: Yeah, And the second question is, um, it's always about it's like insert token ticker tag here. What's the price going to be in (laughs) X number of months? That's the question fair <laughs> fair, fair a lot
0: of people are interested in that side of things uh yeah. Hoshy, we like to end every episode of show me the crypto with a three question segment called you had me at crypto
1: Hashoshi, who is your favorite person to follow in the crypto space andre santanopoulos solid answer awesome awesome it just in case uh again we always like to educate those who are new to the space can you give a quick like why yeah
2: the guy is like <laughs> i might be replacing one obscure for another obscurity but um Antonopoulos is essentially the carl sagan of crypto carl sagan was this like legendary communicator of science like he made science appealing and understandable to the masses and i think Antonopoulos does the same thing for for crypto and communicating how bitcoin works or how ethereum works for example um He's not exactly like he's not going to explain like every altcoin or whatever because it's not his his thing, but uh, a great person to follow to understand the fundamentals. Awesome.
1: What will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? (laughs) Oh, geez.
2: Um, (laughs) 10 years from now, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. I think that at that at that juncture, 10 years from now, I have a feeling that there will be at minimum like a third of the world's population that has or, tr- or is trying to use Bitcoin. And so the valuation of Bitcoin at that juncture, I mean, it, it would have to be all else being equal. It would have to be well into the the hundred thousands, multiple hundreds of thousands based on that level of demand. But again, it's like the equivalent of me closing my eyes and throwing a dart, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the purpose of the question.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's the most underrated coin or project in crypto?
2: That's a good question. I would say there are probably two that are not widely appreciated, but I think have achieved some some quality. Uh, The first one would be Digibyte. I think that they took the UTXO model, the unspent transaction output model that Bitcoin has. They fixed some of the problems by making the focal point Being a transaction network, a payment network, rather than to be a store of value and a very stable, like fixed supply cap asset. So I think like they deserve more attention. Like if I compared like Litecoin and DigiByte, I think DigiByte is more um, more user friendly in a sense to me personally, and I think the community is great. And I don't think they get enough respect. So I'll just actually, I'll leave it at Digibyte. I think it's underappreciated.
1: Awesome.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ashoshi. There's been a ton of value dropped on this episode. We really appreciate you being on this episode of Show Me The Crypto. Thanks so much.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll definitely, we'll do it again soon. Thank you for listening
1: to Show Me The Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe
2: as well as rate and review this podcast.